Welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we tackle bad information one fact at a time. I'm Alexis Conran, and on this episode, we'll be talking about vaccinations. Vaccine hesitancy has been identified by the WHO as one of the top 10 health concerns facing the world. A low vaccine uptake led to the removal of the UK's measles-free status recently, and misinformation is only exacerbating the problem. So why are people reluctant to be vaccinated, despite the proven efficacy of vaccines? And before we discuss this with our expert guest, we're joined by Full Facts Deputy Editor Claire Milne. Claire, you've just finished some research with Africa Czech and Czechiado on why some people might be susceptible to vaccine misinformation. What did you find out? One of the things that we looked at was the role that fear plays both in creating vaccine hesitancy and adding to that, for example, information about vaccines that comes with images of needles. People can often be quite put off by that. You know, having a fear of needles is is quite common and seeing that associated with information about vaccines can, can create a more negative impression of it. Another thing, again, when providing information about vaccines itself, emphasize that actually vaccines are quite safe on the whole. They are quite rigorously tested emphasizing that kind of information rather than actually it's quite low risk that you might get some sort of um, adverse or negative effect from a vaccine. So emphasizing that safety element um, was another thing that, that came out of the research. Now, this is one of the most bizarre stories around vaccine misinformation and involves Bill Gates. Why is Bill Gates so closely associated with vaccine misinformation? What is it about Bill Gates that vaccine deniers don't like? So yes, Bill, Bill Gates is someone who, who crops up quite frequently um, in a lot of the vaccine misinformation we see and also a lot of the information about the, the pandemic um, that we've seen this year and coronavirus. Um, he seems to have been sort of the, the star figure of a lot of the, the vaccine misinformation. See, and not just in the UK, we, we did a, a, an analysis earlier this year with um, fact checkers from, from countries in, in Spain, France, Germany, Italy, and we were all finding very similar posts um, featuring Bill Gates. The Gates Foundation obviously um, does a a lot of work in terms of vaccines around the world. So, you know, there there are a lot of opportunities there for for misinformation to, to start. I think the association comes with, oh, there's, there's a big, powerful multi-billionaire who wants to control us all because the other two bits of this information uh, surrounding vaccines tend to involve control. So this idea that the government is planning to roll out an untested vaccine alongside with the government is also planning to make this mandatory. You've looked at both those claims. What did you find out? So there was a lot of concern just a month or two ago that that the government was, as you say, going to be rolling out an untested vaccine. What that actually originated with was um, a a consultation the government had put out. And in that consultation, what they wanted to get some views back on was whether or not um, any future COVID-19 vaccine could be rolled out without waiting for the, the licensing part of that process to happen so that it could be rolled out more quickly. But a vaccine being rolled out without that licensing process is nothing to do with it being untested. It would definitely still be tested. It wouldn't be, be rolled out until it had gone through that process. So those two things were being confused slightly in, in the communication from, from that consultation. So this theory started that a vaccine wouldn't be tested at all. And that just wasn't the case. And then we've seen, as you say, claims about the, the coronavirus vaccine being mandatory. Um, there's, there's nothing to suggest that that would be the case. No vaccines in the UK are currently mandatory. 
Thank you, uh, as always, Claire. Now, it's time to welcome our guest for this episode, the director of the Vaccine Confidence Project, Professor Heidi Larson. Uh, Professor, thank you for joining us and and welcome to the podcast. Uh, Now, forgive how basic a question this is, but could you give us a super brief history of vaccinations and how they work? Vaccines go back to the 1800s. It, well, it depends how you count. I know Pasteur and the rabies vaccine is in competition with the smallpox vaccine, but it, we go back. It goes back quite a while, and with that also came uh, hesitancy and the first anti-vaccine league back in the 1800s. So, situation we're in now is not brand new. Perhaps people are afraid of something that they don't understand. So from a, from a, a, a medical point of view, can you explain to us in, a, in layman's terms how vaccines work? What are they designed to do? Well, actually, you know, you could frame it as being quite natural, ironically, for those who think it's unnatural. You know, sometimes you see these images that look like when you get a vaccine, you pull up to a petrol pump. But actually, you know, what you're getting is more like a mosquito bite in terms of <laughs> the volume and the and the impact. And basically, it just takes a, a very small, often inactivated piece of the virus that is enough to trigger your immune system, but not enough to give you the disease. So if you do get exposed to a real live virus, you won't get sick. What were the initial forms of vaccines? Were they still delivered by injection or did they start in a different different guise, if you like? Well, they and initially they called it variolation when they basically scratched the skin and put kind of dried scabs from from cowpox, basically, to expose you a little bit to uh, the virus. Again, the principle is the same, to expose a little bit of the virus in a form that doesn't give you the disease, but actually makes your immune system wake up and say, wait a minute, what's this? We want to be ready for, (laughs) want to protect you, basically. When it comes to developing vaccines, what we've been told, particularly in the beginning of this pandemic, was that uh, vaccines take a very long time to develop. Now, we've had good news that in record time, there are vaccines out there that people believe to be functional or to be perhaps our only way out of, of the multiple lockdowns. But why do vaccines take such a long time traditionally to be developed? What is the complicated part about developing a vaccine? Well, frankly, some of the time that it takes is all the approvals and the safety controls and the regulatory process. Uh, There's a lot of bureaucracy around vaccines. It's partly to make sure that they do go through the rigor of all the regulatory uh, approvals. Now, having said that, we are still going through a lot of uh, safety, all the same safety regulations. What they have shortened a bit is some of the other processes and really at at an administrative side, not on the safety side. And we can't forget, these are brand new platforms. These are new technologies for developing vaccines. So we're not shortcutting an old-fashioned process. These are new processes. And because of new technologies, we've characterized the virus quicker than usual. We can make these new uh, options for vaccines. So I, I think in a way, you know, we can celebrate the the new technologies that have given us an opportunity for these. There is going to be some element of 
caution, perhaps, in lots of people's minds and how quickly this vaccine has come about. And perhaps, as you said, perhaps there's a, there's a, um, a shortening of the administrative uh, processes. But do you worry at all that some people may look at the speediness with which this vaccine has been developed and worry uh, that perhaps it's not safe to take just yet? There is a concern about the speed of it, but also the newness. I mean, frankly, it was one of the bigger anxieties and concerns around the H1N1 vaccine in 2009, when we realized that there was this pandemic emerging of H1N1 strain, which was not in the seasonal flu vaccine mix, and they sped ahead to create a vaccine that could protect it. People were very anxious about, including healthcare professionals, about the speed. And that's a very familiar vaccine, the, the seasonal flu vaccine. It changes the strains every year. The H1N1 virus strain is not a brand new one. That's what caused the pandemic, the awful pandemic in 1918. So those were even more familiar than COVID. And even then, uh, there was anxiety about how fast. People don't like things that are just a bit too new. But we have to remind people, this it's not that when these vaccines are approved, it's the first time anyone's getting one. These have gone through tens of thousands of people in different parts of the world to come to the point where they feel confident enough that they're safe and effective to give to the public. So let's talk about some of those first vaccine deniers back in the 1800s. What were they particularly complaining about? They were actually, they weren't so much vaccine deniers. They were, the first name of the anti-vaccine league was actually called the anti-compulsory vaccine league. And what triggered it was not when they introduced the smallpox vaccine, but when they put a mandate on it. And that that was just a bit too much. I mean, there were people who were saying, oh, this is against God's plan. It's not natural. But that didn't create the organized movements and the protests. It was the reaction to the mandate, not unlike today. And actually, the two key issues that were circulating uh, then were it's not natural and don't tell us what to do, Mr. Government. (laughs) And those are two dominant themes throughout the history of vaccines, and we see them now. Where do you think people's concerns come when it comes to the contents of the vaccines? What are they worried about? Well, they worry about different things. They worry about preservatives, which keep the vaccines safe and prevent them from getting bacterial contamination. And is particularly important in some of the poorer countries where you don't have the same level of refrigeration. But it's also important here because vaccines typically don't come one vial at a time. You get a vial that has multiple doses in it that you know, they take the fluid out every time for, say, 10 vaccines. So you want to make sure that that stays safe. And and so the preservative is really important for safety. But some people don't like the fact that it's a preservative. And that's the Marisol is in that is in that bucket, which has been largely taken out of vaccines. But that's one. The other thing that people raise concerns about is adjuvants, which kind of boost the strength of the vaccine in working for your system. And that was certainly a concern around the H1N1 vaccine. It allows you to use less virus to have more impact on people. So these other things that they just 
don't like. It makes the vaccines work better and keeps them safer, but they're not always accepted. <laughs> Do you think then that the problem that we have surrounding vaccines is more uh, rooted in a PR issue, uh, like for example, uh, Andrew Wakefield and the MMR vaccine, those kind of issues. At the moment, one that idea takes root, it's very difficult to shut it down. It's difficult to shut it down unless you have an alternative. Um, and that's where I think the idea of just deleting misinformation is incomplete because unless we fill that space with something else, they're just going to find other quasi-information. I mean, you can't take something out of an ecosystem and not put something else in there. And that's why I think like the kind of collaborative work Claire and I have talked about where you, you know, you want to um, de- delete or move away way from the misinformation without being confrontational about it, but make sure you have something else to offer. And what the challenge is with the vaccines cause autism meme that got provoked by Wakefield, even though that anxiety was there before Wakefield, um, is that there is no simple answer for parents who are concerned about their children getting autism. And here comes Andrew Wakefield and gives them a simple answer it's the vaccine makes takes some of their own guilt that they did something wrong and they can blame it on the vaccine it's a simple answer explains it but the reality is it's not caused by vaccines Uh, the autistic symptoms happen to start to appear about the same time that you've measles vaccine and you know there has been thanks to Andrew Wakefield there's actually been a big investment in autism research you know partly to disprove the link with vaccines but in the meanwhile understand better a lot of genetics age of the father we're learning a lot but it's just not so simple so it's going it makes it hard to get rid of that perception when you don't have a simple alternative and yet sometimes when, when the evidence is in front of people's eyes, it, it's still bemusing to me why people refuse to open them. And I talk about Nigeria, for example, and their polio pandemic. And uh, it's in a country of 200 million people. And there was a lot of doubt over vaccination. Uh, thankfully, that seems to have dissipated. But in, in your view, how important is it that people are educated around the importance of vaccines in, in eradicating a disease. I mean, I've, I've had a family member, I grew up in Greece, I've had a family member who contracted polio, but polio doesn't exist in Greece anymore. And that didn't happen, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it didn't happen because of herd immunity, it happened because of vaccination. Uh, that's true, and we're not over with polio. <laughs> so It's still around in two countries, I believe, still. Yeah, Pakistan and Afghanistan, and there's some deep resistance going on there. But the reality is until we get rid of it there, you know, even if you're in Greece, you're vulnerable. If you get any refugees or anyone coming from different places who coincidentally are carrying the virus. So we're all vulnerable. In your point of view, do you think the public understands that there are certain diseases that we've managed almost to eradicate, and that is solely due to vaccination and not to some weird, strange 
herd immunity or uh, changes of lifestyle or the fact that we're getting healthier and stronger. Do you think we haven't done a better job of explaining how vaccines have been hugely important to eradicating some pretty nasty diseases out there that could have only gone away because of vaccines? I think they know that, actually. <laughs> Do you? Um, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a that's the mantra from most health authorities. I think people understand that. The thing is, that's one, that's history. This is what I hear. Two, that's about the bigger population. And they care. They're very focused on today, now. I mean, more than ever, people are so focused in the moment. Uh, focused on you know their child they 're focused on their their family or themselves. I think they know they hear all the PR from the national health authorities from global health authorities what where I think we 're struggling is that we 're not listening enough there 's a lot of push push messaging oh let 's get the message right. Well, the messages that are coming out are what the public health authorities and government and manufacturers want the public to know, think the public should know. They're not putting things out there that are answering, necessarily answering the questions of the public. And that's where we have uh, my recent book that came out called Stuck. That's where we're stuck because it's almost like two different languages, but it's more about two different kinds of communication. And we need to work more more dialogue in there. We need to be more responsive to what they're asking about. They're asking about adjuvants. They're not, they don't want to know. I mean, yeah, we know that they, you know, saved millions of lives, but what about that adjuvant in the vaccine? And why do I need so many at one time? And by the way, when they got rid of polio in most of those countries, there were only four vaccines. There are 85 different injections my child has to get or however many. So they're very in the moment and to a certain extent, understandably. And at the risk of of possibly giving away the the finale to your book, how do we get unstuck? Well, I think we, we need to start getting unstuck by learning how to talk to people of different views. What has been fascinating to me, and I never thought I'd be sticking on this topic for so long. Uh, I mean, now I've, you know, with the vaccine confidence 10 years old, and I set it up because of the work I was doing the 10 years before. I never thought I would be so focused on it. But what to me, it just reflects so many underlying issues, historically, politically, socially, culturally, through these vaccine stories. So I think the only way we can get unstuck, and partly it's embedded in the polarization in society, but is putting down the polarization. We This whole, you know, you're in or you're out, the pro or the anti. Um, there's a lot of people in the middle who are actually quite open but feel pushed out of the opportunity for a conversation. So it's getting them involved more in your point of view? No, it's about getting us involved as a public health community. They're very involved. There's no single culprit or single winner here. And I think one of the problems is we keep, you know, we point to the public, say public needs to understand science better. The public needs to this and the public need. And frankly, we all can do a better job. We can be- do a better job of listening, just hearing them out, even if we don't agree. Uh, they can also be a little less aggressive, but they're getting aggressive because they're not being heard. 
Professor, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating to talk to you about vaccines. Thank you. That's all we have time for in this episode of the Full Fact Podcast, which was released on the 16th of November. As such, all the information was up to date at the time, but of course things may have well changed since the release. Professor Larson is an expert in her field, but her views are not necessarily a reflection of Full Facts. Full Fact is an independent and impartial charity, and you can read about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. As a fact-checking charity, we depend on your support to call out false and harmful information. If you enjoyed this episode, become a supporter today at fullfact.org slash donate.